well, Christmas is over. Now what? Well, the Super Bowl is only four weeks away. <coughs> Lent's seven weeks away, and Easter's 14 weeks away. What are we going to do with ourselves between now and Easter? Any suggestions? I mean, maybe we should just call church off and just wait and come back during Lent. What do you think? No? Y'all aren't signing up for that? Some of you might, maybe. I don't know. You, you know, I, I, too often it seems to me as if we think um, that Jesus was born and, and nothing that happens in between Jesus' birth and his death are really that important. We, we, we almost seem on this side of the resurrection, we like to run off, run, run to Paul and, and begin to talk about the resurrection because we almost seems like on this side of the resurrection, we treat Jesus' teaching as if it was simply meant to be uh, Jesus' teaching and healing was simply meant to show that he was God's son, that somehow he was divine. Or, or we treat Jesus' teaching as if, well, the whole purpose of it was for Jesus to tell us how bad we are so that we would know that we need to be forgiven. And then to turn around and say, but don't worry about it. I've taken care of it. I died for you so that uh, you can just believe that I'm God's son, believe that I died for you, and when you die, you'll rise again and go to heaven like me. And we act as if that's the gist of Jesus' teaching. We act as if all that Jesus was concerned about was that we would be prepared to go to heaven when we die, and that until then, we just kind of hang on and survive. And so I don't know, maybe between now and Easter, we just need to do messages about hanging on and surviving. No, probably not. See, I don't think that was Jesus' intent, though. Do you? I mean, I know that's how we hear it often, but I don't think that that was Jesus' intent. I don't think his teaching and his uh, walking here on this earth was simply about telling us that we're bad people and that we need to be forgiven, but don't worry about it. Just trust that he's God and that he died for us and all will be okay when we die. And until then, the best we can do is just hang on and survive. And so, um, over the next few weeks, we are going to unpack one of Jesus' most significant teachings. It's found in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. But today, before we dig into the Sermon on the Mount, I thought it might be good for us to prepare ourselves to hear Jesus' words. Does that make sense? See, I, I think sometimes... Um, it's just as important to prepare ourselves to hear Jesus' teaching so that when we read it, we are better able to let it sink in and shape us 
and form us. And so um, it might be good for us to just look at what goes on in the first four chapters of Matthew. Can we do that today? You know, in Matthew chapter 1, um, in Matthew chapter 1, we have this long genealogy, which I'm sure that all of you read once a week, right? Maybe not. We've got this long genealogy which connects Jesus to Abraham. And then we have a birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1. You know, we, we spent Advent reading from Luke, and Luke has this appearance of all these angels, of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and Elizabeth and then to Mary. Well, in Matthew, we get a narrative where um, an angel comes to Joseph. And uh, just this very brief narrative, and then Jesus is born. And then in uh, chapter 2, we get the story of the, the magi, the wise men, or the astrologers is what they really were. In fact, on this Sunday, most of the time, this is what the sermon would be about because this is Epiphany Sunday, and this is a Sunday in which we usually celebrate these astrologers who came seeking, seeking to find the king of the Jews who they thought that this star was pointing to. And so we hear that story in, in um, Matthew chapter 2, and we begin to see this clash of kingdoms. We begin to see this clash of kingdoms where the astrologers go first to Jerusalem and speak with Herod, and, and then they're supposed to come back and tell Herod where the child is because Herod says he wants to go worship the king. In reality, what happens is the astrologers don't come back and so Herod goes out to seek this child that has been born, that has been declared, um, or, or that these astrologers say will be the king of the Jews, because he sees him as a threat to his kingdom. And so he goes out to kill all of these kids that are two years older, old. You, you know, the Magi didn't come at the birth. They came about two years later is when they came. Um, but, but fortunately... Um, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they have escaped to Egypt, and so they are saved. And so we hear about that in chapter 2, and, and we hear about them coming back and settling in Nazareth, and we don't hear anything else about Jesus for a whole chapter. And then in chapter 3, in chapter 3, um, we, we, we read these words. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea, announcing, repent or change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of God. He was the one who Isaiah the prophet spoke of when he said, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness will prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. In Matthew, we don't get a birth narrative of John the Baptist. We get John the Baptist appearing on the scene suddenly, proclaiming that God is doing something new, that in fact God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is coming here, has come here, and it's time for people to repent, that is to change directions, to change their hearts and their lives. Do you notice, John the Baptist doesn't say, hey, God's coming so that you can go to heaven when you die. He says the kingdom of heaven has come to be here, and I've come to prepare you. 
Because he realized that this was uh, something that the people weren't ready for and they needed some preparation. And so um, this is what happens. And he's baptizing people um, and encouraging them to realign themselves with God and God's ways because, because the religious leaders, because um, the Roman government, um, because the people had failed to align themselves with God. And at the end of that chapter, we see that Jesus comes and Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer. Now, we don't know what to do with that because we know that Jesus didn't need to be forgiven, right? See, I think Jesus is coming to be baptized to show that he is on board and fully willing to be aligned with God's purposes and ways in the world. It's a way in which his ministry actually is inaugurated. And when he comes up out of the water, the Spirit comes down upon him. And then in chapter 4, we see that Jesus goes out into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, where he experiences temptation. See, Matthew wants to point out that Jesus comes... That God comes in the person of Jesus and he is involved in all of life like we are. He experiences a baptism. He experiences a temptation. And immediately after being tempted, in chapter 4, we are told now that, that Jesus heard that John had been arrested. And so Jesus goes to Galilee he left Nazareth, and he settled in Capernaum, which lies along the sea near uh, Naphtali. And this fulfilled what Isaiah was saying. And this is what Jesus said. From this time forward, Jesus began to announce, just believe in me, and you'll go to heaven when you die. No? Some of you were, like, following. <laughs> Repent. Change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of God. Not wait until you die. Here comes the kingdom of God now. Here comes the kingdom of God now. Jesus announces the kingdom and the saving presence of God has arrived in this upside down and broken world. And immediately after that, what does Jesus do? He goes through the countryside and he calls people to come and follow. He begins to call and to shape a community of people to be around him. A community of people who will learn from him. A community of people who after his death will carry on his proclamation that the kingdom is here. And then immediately after that, we read um, that Jesus traveled through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. He announced the good news of the kingdom. Not only did he announce it, but he demonstrated it because he healed diseases and sickness among the people and news about him spread throughout Syria. And so people brought more uh, people with sickness and diseases and he healed them. And large crowds followed Jesus 
wherever he went. Not only did he come just to proclaim it, but he came to demonstrate it and to manifest the kingdom of God breaking into this world, bringing healing and hope to a broken and hurting world. And then we're told in chapter 5, Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain, and he sat down, and he began to teach. It's that teaching that we'll begin to look at over the next few weeks. But do you hear? Jesus came and he talked about the kingdom of God. So guess what his sermon and his message is going to be about? It's going to be about the reign of God, about the kingdom of God. And it's not going to be about the kingdom of God in heaven or the kingdom of God after we die. It's going to be about the kingdom of God that has broken into this world and is still existing in this world, shaping and forming people. However, we might understand what Jesus did between that first Christmas and that first Easter. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He manifested in his healing and his casting out of demons. And he taught about it and he empowered and sent his disciples to proclaim it and to manifest it and to teach it also. Guess who his disciples are today? Anybody know? They're us. So this sermon is just important for us today. This message from Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are just as important for us today as they were for the people then. But it's also important that we hear the sermon correctly. We get this version, this vision of Jesus goes up on a mountain. What does that remind us of? Anybody? Does that remind us of Moses? Moses going up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? To, to hear from God. And so we get this vision that somehow Jesus' teaching is going to be significant. In fact, the early church found this section of Matthew to be foundational for our understanding of Christianity. But this teaching, it's not just a new list of rules that replaces the Ten Commandments. It is a sermon filled with examples and illustrations of what it looks like for people to live out the kingdom here and now. It is not a sermon that tells us how bad we are and how much we need to avoid sin, but it is a message that encourages us to know not only have we been forgiven, but we have been empowered empowered to live and to love like Jesus. It is a sermon that encourages us to flourish even in a fallen and broken world. It is not a comprehensive answer book or rule book. It is not a step-by-step how-to live in this world. It's this series of illustrations and four example case studies of life under God's reign here and now. It is given to us 
to encourage us to capture this vision, this vision of what it looks like to live under the reign of God, empowered by his spirit here and now in this world. It's not a sermon about some utopian um, place that we go. It is a sermon that realizes uh, that the kingdom of God is breaking into this very real world. And it sketches, it sketches out what this alternative community and this alternative way of life might look like even in the midst of a fallen and broken world. It is a sermon that is intended to inform and to form us. But you know what? If we come to it with these on, or we come to it with some preconceived notion that it really isn't that important because all that matters is that we believe that Jesus is God and that he died for us and that we're going to go to heaven when we die and what happens between now and then really isn't significant, we truly have missed the gospel message. For you see, in the middle of this sermon, there's this prayer that we do every week. Yes? And, and it goes something like this, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, may we go to heaven when we die. <laughs> Wait a second. It says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth. As it is. In heaven. And heaven is simply where God reigns. We say that prayer every week. This sermon is a reminder that God's goal was not to have humans go to some heaven. In fact, in Revelation, what happens? It's a new heaven and a new earth. Where do we end up? On the new earth. Not in some heavenly realm, um, singing songs on some golden streets or whatever, whatever we've, we've convinced ourselves. God's goal has always been to unite heaven and earth, to bring heaven here on earth earth. That's what happened in Jesus, isn't it? Heaven came to earth. The kingdom of God arrived. People experienced healing and wholeness and hope. It really is a sermon that encourages us and teaches us how to flourish in this upside-down world. It's also a sermon 
that redefines what flourish means. It doesn't define flourish in a worldly sense. In Jesus' teaching and in his life, he demonstrated and he taught about a different way of existing with each other. Not a way that depends on might and violence, but a way in which the community that he called is called to be the salt and the light and the leaven. A people who proclaim the kingdom of God, who manifest the kingdom of God, who teach that the kingdom of God is about love and grace and peace and wholeness and well-being. I invite you, this week, pick up your Bibles, begin to read Matthew chapter 5. In fact, I invite you uh, this afternoon, go home, read 5, 6, and 7, three chapters. You can do it before the football game starts. Begin over this next six weeks to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 over and over and over again. Come back, both as you read and as you join in worship on Sunday, with open ears and open hearts. Come prepared to hear Jesus share with us how it is that we can exist as a community that doesn't just wait until we get to heaven to enjoy the presence of God, but a people who live in the presence of God now so that we might flourish and so that this upside-down broken world might experience healing, hope, and wholeness. May we seek to be the people of God this day and every day. Amen. Now you ready for communion? Yes? Amen. I know who it is. I'm ready too. Gracious God, forgive us for those times when we think that you just call us to hang on and to survive while we're here. Forgive us for those times when we think that we're just called to do our own thing rather than be shaped and formed by you. Forgive us. Empower us by your Holy Spirit that we may hear your words, that we may put them into practice, and that we may join the Holy Spirit in proclaiming and manifesting and teaching about your kingdom. Amen. And now, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts.
Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Indeed, it is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You delivered your people from captivity. You made a covenant to be their sovereign God, and you brought them to a land that was your gift to them. You raise us up, making us a light to the nations that through us, others might know your ways and experience your love and your grace. And so, with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and we join in their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Indeed, holy are you, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived and manifest and taught us how we might flourish in this upside-down world, how we might offer hope and healing to others. By the baptism of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and you made with us a new covenant by water and by spirit. On the night in which Jesus gave himself for us, he took the bread broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks. He said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. And so it is in remembrance of these mighty acts in Jesus Christ, in his coming and proclaiming and manifesting and teaching us that we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ, offering ourselves as we proclaim the great mystery of faith. Indeed, pour out your Holy Spirit upon those gathered here. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon this gift of bread and cup, that they may be for us the body and blood of Christ, so that we might be your holy church, that we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, empowered by the Spirit, so that your kingdom might come here on earth, as it is in heaven. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other and one in ministry to the all, all the world until Christ shall come again in final victory and we will feast at that heavenly banquet. Through your son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, may all honor and glory be yours, almighty Father, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 